The Top 5 Secrets of Successful Investors Explained. Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast dedicated to helping you demystify the sometimes complex topic of money. I'm Adam Cox, Head of Wealth Management for the First National Bank in Sioux Falls. We're a community bank based out of South Dakota. In this podcast, we share expert insights from around the country and stories from our local community to arm you with the tools you need to make better financial decisions. Because the truth is, the more we talk about this stuff, the better off we're all going to be. On today's episode, we're going to explore the top five secrets of successful investors and discuss how anyone can apply them to their own portfolios. And to help me do that, I'm joined by Sarah Madison, a chartered financial analyst and portfolio manager in our wealth management department who has been in professional money management for nearly two decades. Sarah is passionate about helping people and organizations preserve and grow their wealth to live intentionally, which will come through in today's episode. She is a proud BUM alum of South Dakota State University, where she graduated with highest honors with a BS in business administration and a minor in accounting. Sarah is a self-professed lifelong geek who loves to read, build spreadsheets, calculate things, and enjoy good food, good drinks, and good laughs, especially with her three kids and husband. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Adam. Great oh, to be here. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm good. Well, before we dive into today's topic, let's start with some fun questions first. What kind of music are you into? Well, I like a lot of variety of music. Okay. Um, so anything from instrumental mm-hmm. or classical all the way to hard rock. Um, but my favorite music is anything that brings me into the moment. Okay. Um, and so good melody, yep. um, you know, good lyrics, uh, emotion. Yeah. Uh, even better if I can sing along. Oh, nice. So, nice. Yeah. Oh, Not any good, but yeah. that doesn't stop me. That's all right. Especially when you're in a your car, right? Yeah. yeah. Who can tell? <laughs> yeah. How about this? What's the best concert you've ever been to? Um, that one is hard because... Again, I love music and I really love live concerts. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of competition. But I think um, the best one actually started as the worst concert. Okay. So um, I saw Garth Brooks in Las Vegas. Nice. And Garth Brooks at that point in time had won years of performer of the year. Right. And I had heard that he literally came swinging down from the <laughs> ceiling to this massive band light show, you know, smoke, maybe some pyrotechnics. Yeah. I have big expectations. And these tickets were crazy expensive, yeah. at least from what I'm used to. Right. <laughs> so I had these huge expectations and Garth comes out by himself with a stool and an acoustic guitar <laughs> and he starts talking and I'm like, Wait, what? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> what is happening right now? <laughs> where's the band? Yeah. Where's all the instruments? Where's the lights? Where's the smoke machine? Where's all the like him yeah. <laughs> flying through the air? <laughs> um, and so it started like, what? Oh, no. What is this? Yeah. Um, but Garth won me over. Um, he had shared. It was a lot of him explaining his musical journey and okay. life, yeah. um, mistakes that he made in life, um, what he had learned from those, mm. and um, kind of how he thought about music. And he won me over in um, sharing those things. And we really got to know him on a personal level. And he really showed his musical talent by singing other people's covers mm. 
better than the originals, which oh. was completely unexpected. That's so, cool. Yeah, it was it was a really neat experience. Wow, what a cool show. Okay, well, so between the two of us, we've got more than 30 years of experience in this industry. And over that period of time, we've seen all sorts of investors, right? We've seen yeah. some really phenomenal investors and some not so phenomenal investors. <laughs> and then everywhere in between. So between the two of us, we were able to come up with a list of the top five secrets of the most successful investors we've worked with. And most importantly, how our listeners can apply those to to their own portfolios. So you ready to walk through them? I am. Let's do this. All right, let's go. Secret number one, successful investors don't try to time the market. Sarah, what does it mean to try to time the market? Yeah. So anytime that someone... Um, wants to be in invested in an asset or not invested in an asset, generally for a select amount of time. They want to own something or they don't want to own it, but not forever. Sure. That's generally timing the market. Okay. And timing the market in theory sounds so great and yep. so obvious, especially when it comes to things like the stock market. Because we know stocks are going to go down, mm -hmm. right? They always do. It's kind of the nature. Um, it's important to expect it. Kind of like we expect a snowstorm when we live in South Dakota. Right. Sometime during the winter, it's going to happen. We don't know when. We don't know how much. But we know it's going to happen. Yes. And timing the market seems like such a great and smart idea. The trouble is that people don't do it well. Even professionals mm. don't do it well. Because the odds are stacked against you. The market is positive the vast majority of the time. So more than seven out of 10, um, in fact, it's more like 75% of the time, the market is positive Sure. Um, over calendar years and even trading days, weeks, months, et cetera. So that upward momentum works against you anytime mm -hmm. you're going to be out of the market. So what drives us to try to time the market? Is it just emotions, fear, greed, like... What is it? Yeah, all of that. I mean, we're human creatures and yeah. we have, you know, the the fight or flight responses that are very helpful and useful in keeping us alive, but not very helpful and useful when it comes to investing. Sure. So those same fight or flight responses, we feel those losses and down days more than we feel those up days. Mm. Um, there's also the FOMO, right? Yeah, the fear right. of missing out. Um, you know, we want to be in and we want to make even better returns, uh, maybe that can drive some of that as well. So yep. we're human creatures and we need to accept that and work with that. Um, but just understand that those fight or flight responses are a negative when it comes to investing, because the research shows people don't do a good job mm -hmm. of timing um, purchase and sale decisions, when to be in the market or when to ever get out. Sure. Well, and I think people also forget too, that when you're timing the market, you have to get it right twice, not once. Like you have to know when to get out, but you also have to know when to get back in. And that's incredibly difficult. So yes. what does the data say like about when we're out of the market at the wrong time, what happens to our returns? Yeah. Great question, Adam. Exactly. You have to get both sides right. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly difficult to even get one of those sides right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what the data shows is um, that you, you are more likely if you're out of the market um, versus in and then out to have a lower return. Um, in fact, there's research on the missed best days. And over a 30-year time frame, 
you wouldn't think that one single trading day would make a difference, but the growth of $1,000 over 30 years and missing the single best trading day is a difference on $1,000 of over $2,000. So double your initial investment just by missing that single best day. Wow! And that single best day happened during the worst days in the market. So if you think that you can be out of the market during those worst days, you're going to miss that single best day. Sure. It's even worse over, you know, just a handful of the best trading days. That growth of $1,000 over 30 years is lowered than just being in the market by over $7,500. So yeah, the research is very compelling to... Uh, just be in and not miss those good trading days. Sure. Well, you know, so what's the alternative, right? I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, practice what we preach. You know, yes. so I, I can tell you what, what I do and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm all wrong. You know, some of this is psychology too, mm-hmm. right? And we all tend to overestimate maybe our abilities to know what's coming around the corner. Um, so one thing we tell clients and something I do in practice is, I consistently invest on the same day, like every month, Uh, whether the market's good, whether the market's bad, all-time highs, all-time lows, like it doesn't matter, I'm investing. And over a long period of time, that's worked out very, very well. Um, So the reason why I do that is I go by the old adage that time in the market is more important than timing the market. Absolutely. No, you're doing it right, Adam. And that is also known as dollar cost averaging. Yep. Um, So... That market fluctuation, you're going to buy at different points in time. Um, You know, generally the money that you buy later, you're probably paying higher prices for. Mm -hmm. But um, by doing it on a purchase schedule or in reverse, if you were making sales, doing it on a sales schedule, what you're doing is taking the emotion out of it. You're not deciding to invest because you feel like what you're going to invest in is going to go up, especially go up soon. Um, You are investing, you know, for a long time frame. And you're doing it with a disciplined purchase mechanic or that dollar cost averaging. And that's absolutely a great way to do it. Good. I'll sleep tonight. Thank you. Uh, All right. Secret number two, successful investors don't actually trade very much. So this might seem counterintuitive, uh, especially to newer investors. They would, I think, assume that being an active trader um, is better than being a passive trader because we should be reacting to every news headline that comes every minute of every hour of every day. But that's not maybe necessarily true. So what does the data tell us about frequent trading? Yeah, the data says don't do it. (laughs) Just don't do it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, don't do it. Um, I'll I'll name a couple of things here. Again, we we have a very evidence-based approach that we rely on for our customers. And so um, in anything, I go back to what does research say? (laughs) Well, and there was a very large custodian that did a study looking at decades of performance um, and they have millions, uh, millions of accounts looking at their performance and they um, grouped them and they looked at the best performing and the worst performing group over the long time frame. And they surveyed to find out if there was any commonalities and the worst performing group had traded the most often Hmm. and the best performing group, interestingly and somewhat comically, had all forgotten they had an account. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that they traded the least given yeah. that they didn't even know that the account existed. They, yeah. they purchased their investments and then just let it ride for decades and it worked really well for them. Um, 
There is also a study about women being better investors. And this sure. is some of the newer research. And of course, as a female, I find it very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to share it. <laughs> and I find it with... troubling, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love to share it with my male coworkers. Yeah. Um, but it was Fidelity. They just did a study, more than 5 million people. And they found that women um, performed better fairly consistently. Mm. Um, and what they found was as a group, the women traded half as often okay. as the male customers. Sure. And so again, just another data point trading. Um, I'll also go back. There was a classic uh, paper that was in the Journal of Finance back in 2000. This was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. Um, but more than 20 years later, a lot of research confirming it. And the title was Trading is Hazardous to Your Wealth. Mm. So mm. let that sink in, yeah. Trading Hazardous to Your Wealth. And again, um, in the 20 plus years, the research has confirmed, typically the more trading an account has, uh, the lower the returns. Oh, that's interesting. It, and it's funny sometimes, I mean, you and I have dealt with this too, when we sometimes bring on new clients. Mm -hmm they almost expect when they call that they're going to hear like a boiler room in the background, like people <laughs> screaming buy and sell and all sorts of things. But that's, you know, again, we go back to the research. That's not what good long-term investing looks like. Instead, you know, we're spending our time focused more on picking really solid investments that can withstand a lot of different market cycles that are low cost, they're well diversified. And we try to leave them alone. Yeah, we really do. Um, there are costs associated with trading. Yeah. So um, there's commissions with mm -hmm. trades. And even though, you know, thanks to a good competition, those costs have really come down. Um, but there's still a difference between where an investment can be purchased at and sold at. Yeah. Um, and that that can't be avoided. And how much that difference between a purchase and sale is varies by kind of how liquid the investment is. Sure. But those costs are all still there, let alone tax consequences mm. when you sell something uh, in an account that's taxable. So anytime you have the trading, um, you're more likely to be involved in market timing. Yeah. Um, but you also increase your costs with that as well. Sure. So somewhat interestingly, there's a lot of research too that what they find is that investors underperform the investment that they're invested in. And that happens over the time period anytime there's a purchase or sale. Yeah. So again, just a ton of research showing um, that typically people are not good mm -hmm. at that decision on when to buy or sell and just staying invested in the investment tends to do the best. Sure. And that's hard. That's hard for us to hear, right? Uh, it's like the Lake Wobegon effect, whether we're talking about driving <laughs> or investing, we all think we're above average. So um, yeah, but the data is what the data is. So Yeah, it is. You know, what's interesting about that study, Adam, yeah. of we all think that we're above average drivers. Yeah. Um, even the <laughs> drivers surveyed in the hospital <laughs> with accidents they caused still answered that they were an above average driver. I love that. So yeah. with all evidence to the contrary, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we're still above average. Yeah, I love it. All right. Secret number three, successful investors rebalance their portfolios, but not too often. So Sarah, what is rebalancing and why is it important? Yeah, good question, Adam. So rebalancing means that you have um, some target weights mm -hmm or target percentages to the investments, especially to asset classes. Sure. So asset classes like the stocks, bonds, and cash, mm -hmm. that you have some targeted weights to those and rebalancing means that you periodically make the trades to bring them back to those target weights. 
Sure. So we just got done talking about the harms of trading too much. Yeah. <laughs> and now here we are saying you need to rebalance. So are we talking out of both sides of our mouth? Uh, yes and no. Okay. So there, there is, um, a, a magic to it. And that magic is, um, you know, the markets are very volatile and yeah. you can kind of use that volatility to your advantage when you rebalance in a disciplined fashion. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, just once a year, say on your birthday or, sure. you know, beginning of the year, end of year, whatever, whatever you can remember, um, and you put it on there. If you rebalance to those targets, it helps you to buy low and sell high, which is always what we want to do. Rather, yeah. again, what we see actually happen is that oftentimes people buy high mm. and sell low. But rebalancing a portfolio back to those target weights helps so that what performed relatively well is being sold back down to target and sure. what underperformed the other investments is being purchased to bring up to that target. So the rebalancing helps, again, to do what you should do in investing and buy low and sell high and sort of use some of that um, volatility to your favor. So probably do it at least annually. Yep. Another way to do it, the the optimal way, and we um, employ this for our clients Mm -hmm. as well, in addition to the annual, is you have these target weights and when they get more than over a threshold away, say 5% away from the target, you also then rebalance it back to target. And that does really help in an extremely volatile market like we've had the last couple of years. Yeah, sure. Are there any tools to make this easier for investors? Yeah, there are. um, A lot of uh, retirement plans will have where you can set up automatic rebalancing. Okay. Um, You know, obviously hiring a professional like our firm that does um, that rebalancing as part of the discipline processes yep. is also an answer. Again, having uh, putting it on your calendar if you're doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. I love the birthday one just because it's kind of one of those things. Yeah. It's another year, another yep. year older, um, another thing to assess or at a certain time sure. of the year to do as well. There are investments um, that will also, you know, um, do that rebalancing for you, like a target date fund yeah. or something like that. Although those uh, target date funds should really be held in a tax-deferred retirement account. As, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we saw in the Wall Street Journal uh, just this week. Yeah. Uh, what a surprise, almost 30% tax hit yeah. um, to, to customers that held those outside in taxable accounts. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, there are are a lot of tools to help. Uh, and again, the research shows that adding value if you rebalance, but again, not too often. Yeah. So there's, you know, even just once a year gets you most of the way there. Even sure. better, you know, the the most optimal is to have that percentage, but yep. um, you'll be well on your way if you just do it once a year. Sure. Like everything in life, balance, right? Yes. <laughs> Moderation. Moderation. <laughs> All right. Secret number four, successful investors are diversified. So in this industry, we talk a lot about the importance of having a diversified portfolio. What, what does that mean and why is that important? Yeah. So Adam, what that means, you know, again, to go back to the sayings, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. So you don't have all of your wealth into any one thing, Mm. right? So it's spreading it out, um, especially as it relates to an investment um, or like a stock industry, et cetera. 
the market does not compensate you for the risk of having a lot of your wealth in that one thing. Okay. Um, and so we talk a lot about taking risks, but taking risks that the market will reward you for. Mm. Um, and concentrations are one of the very well-known, <laughs> you do not get paid to have them, but they are shockingly common. Yeah. Um, even my own dad sure. had a concentration that I could not talk him out of. Yeah. So he he liked the dividend income. I said, dad, I can make you a portfolio. Yeah. Well diversified with as much income, maybe even a little more uh, if you want. And then if something happens to this one industry, you know, a law change or management change or anything like that, um, you know, then, then he would be set. But it's, it's amazing how often we see that. And, you know, it's like, there's so many examples Oftentimes people think about like Enron and WorldCom um, where there was fraud involved and the companies went bankrupt and lost everything. But there are so many instances of the world just changed Mm -hmm. and investors lost a lot of money when they were in a company. And if they had a concentration in that company, there's a a lot of lawsuits um, related to like Kodak. Kodak was very slow to adjust to the digital age. um, And some investors had concentrations in Kodak and Mm -hmm. lost a lot with that. Also, Blackberry. Yeah. I had a Blackberry. I loved my oh, Blackberry. Best I loved, one I've ever had. Yeah. yeah I love the little keyboard. And <laughs> yes. now, yep. you know, now I'm on whatever number iPhone, yeah. right? I've been yeah. an iPhone um, <laughs> user for years and we're heavy into the, <laughs> into the Apple network. Yeah. Um, so again, Blackberry, you know, who would have seen that right. the iPhone would come along and just obliterate it. Yeah. So, um, and even more recently, ExxonMobil, right? Just yep. that the oil industry was hit when the rest of the world mm-hmm. had been doing well and then hit further when, um, you know, we went into the global pandemic and, right. and energy went down. So there's just a lot of instances of where um, the market's not going to pay you to take a concentration risk. And so diversification is a way the research shows to add about a percent of return um, a year just being properly diversified and sure. not letting things get to be too much. Again, rebalancing if something does really well, yep. back down to those targets. Yeah, I saw this a lot in uh, Minnesota. I spent quite a bit of my career, early part of my career there, and 3M, yeah. big company up there. Yeah. And it was a lot of pride with that company yeah. and the people, especially that worked there who held the 3M stock, You know, their kids or grandkids, they would not sell it. Yeah. They just held on. So the, so it's not only um, just the stock has done well and I want to keep riding that rocket ship. There's also can be an emotional uh, component to the investments that we hold too. Yep. And we are fine with our customers hanging on to those, especially the ones it was like, oh, grandpa worked for, yep. mom or dad worked with yep. um, XYZ company. And we absolutely think that they should hold that and hang on to that, but not in a level that if something happened to that company or to that industry, um, that it's going to mean that they're not going to achieve their goals. So it's fine to hold it and it's fine to have that emotional connection to these companies, um, especially the ones near and dear to us, right? That, that are nearby. Um, I actually wrote a published paper on the home equity bias and that is investors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All these things you're learning about me. Why am I not surprised? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, in another life, if I had more time, I would nerd out on a lot of that kind of stuff, but um, not so much anymore. But what we find is that investors are more comfortable with companies that are physically located close to them. And yep. so um, we see that, you know, no matter what country you live in, 
most of the time, the vast majority of your assets are invested in that country. Mm. And that's true whether you're in the U.S. or Japan sure. or Australia or Canada. Yeah. Even though, um, you know, U.S. market's been on a tear, that's true for all the other countries that we're just more comfortable with what's close to us. But again, um, the diversification yep. says, you know, something could happen um, nearby. And so, again, if you have your eggs spread out in the other baskets, then... If technology is what's doing great, then you have some exposure to that and you'll participate in that upward market too. Let me hit you with a saying and tell me what you think about it. Fortunes are made and lost in concentrations. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, <laughs> we, we see that as well where, um, yeah, concentrations create a lot of wealth, especially yeah. like a family business. Um or an investment that somebody got into or in the early days, yep. but that wealth is maintained through diversification. So sometimes those fortunes are won mm. and then very quickly also lost. Sure. We see that a lot with um, like the different cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, people get rich quick and and then they get poor very quickly yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, in fact, I love the uh, Hungarian stockbroker that had said, I can't tell you how to get rich quick, but I can tell you that trying to get rich quick is a sure way to get poor quick. Yeah, <laughs> so true. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned this before, but FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, that makes it worse. I think when we see investments, particularly recently, like a, the cryptocurrency or yeah. some of these like GameStop, some of, the, some of these companies or GameStop um, that have just taken off people get this FOMO and then they want to pile in. Yeah. Anything that's moving in price really dramatically, really quickly, then yeah, we tend to see that. Um, and again, an emotional response um, tied to that as well. But yeah, it may be that a concentration creates the wealth, but yep. it's really the diversification that that helps to maintain it. And sure. again, you don't get paid to have a lot of your wealth tied up into one investment. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, less people think that we're perfect. This actually happened to me when I was a teenager. That's when I learned how to invest in the stock market. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was during the dot-com oh. bubble. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was doing all the things that we tell our clients not to do. I was, you know, putting everything in concentrated positions. I was day trading, doing all stuff. And it worked really, really well. Until it didn't. Until it didn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's I lost, typically how that yeah, works. <laughs> I lost basically everything. Uh, and um, and while that lesson, you know, was painful and it, the experience absolutely sucked, uh, I'm very glad looking back on it that I learned it when I was 17 and not 47. I'm sure. And I'm sure there was a lot less money to be lost. Yes. <laughs> in yes. that life lesson <laughs> yeah. learned. Uh, yeah, I have my own mistakes as well where I didn't, um, I, I inherited some money, um, in college and, uh, same thing mm. was not properly diversified yep. with that. Um, so yeah, when I, um, occasionally a guest speaker on an investment class, um, they tend to get a kick out of me sharing the, the big mistakes. Sure. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, my fumbles and there's been plenty of them, Yeah, but, but thankfully with my own money and not client money. Yeah, exactly. All right. Last secret. Secret number five, successful investors manage costs. Sarah, what do we mean by costs? 
Yeah. So cost is kind of an all-encompassing thing. And interestingly, I think that people often associate cost with value. Okay. Um, and that can be true, right? If you pay a higher price for a suit, you're probably getting, you know, a better quality fabric, um, you know, maybe a better fit and some of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to investing, um, that's only true to so far. Okay. Um, and so a lot of the time, the costs just erode away your investment return and they're not adding any value for you. So the return that you have from investing is what's left over after you pay all costs, including sure. taxes. And, and investors, um, even some some professional investors, depending on the firm and their philosophy, really ignore taxes. Mm. But money saved in taxes that gets to continue to be invested and grow uh, and costs in general, money saved by paying less, um, the same investment. You know, we are just hounds on paying as little as humanly possible for everything across the board on costs, as sure. I know you're well aware yes, of. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. we, we squeak, we're so cheap. Yes. Um, but saving those costs, uh, whether it be taxes or whether it be your saving costs on commissions or, um, you know, what you're paying on your investments, that money saved is just as real and tangible um, as additional money earned through a very elaborate investment plan. Sure. Yep. So we, um, in fact, the, again, the research shows that that's the most predictive. Mm. So um, the lower your costs, the more likely you are to be one of the top performers. Okay. If you have about average costs, then what the research shows is you're probably going to have somewhere in that average return okay. um, for what you're invested in. But yeah. the lower your costs, the more likely you are to have that performance uh, exceed the average. Sure. Well, I mean, let's be honest. It costs money to hire us. Yeah, Right. And it's our firm. Yeah. So that's a cost that investors bear. If we are really being intentional about reducing costs, does that mean investors should not hire advisors and just invest money themselves? It depends. Okay. Yeah. So I think that we add value and the research shows that professional um, managers that do investments, that do these five secrets, Mm -hmm. um, more than pay for themselves. In fact, for our fee schedule, almost three times um, what we charge, but it's overtime and it's lumpy. It's not year in and year out, but that over time, we more than pay for ourselves um, by doing these smart things, Mm. by investing um, to help clients achieve their goals. So they're invested in the right mix of investments that we're doing the rebalancing, that we're being very cost and tax conscious for them. Sure. Um, and we're being very disciplined with the market and not being scared in or out. Yeah. Um, we saw a lot of opportunities these during um, the COVID pandemic. And um, thankfully, our clients were able to take advantage of that uh, with some well-timed purchases, again, being disciplined into those investments to get them back to target. So sure. yeah, it is a cost. I think if a person can manage their own money um, and they have the discipline to to not make those emotion-based decisions, to stay invested, um, to stay diversified, and, and those kinds of things to do that. I, I think people often do that on their own when they're younger. And then we see people get to a point where it's complicated enough. It's big enough. 
um, the stakes get bigger. The stakes get bigger mm-hmm. that they want some professional help or that they're just not interested yeah. in doing it as much. I, I have the pleasure of working with some customers that are very passionate about investing like me and I love them, mm-hmm. um, but they still want my involvement because they aren't, they want to do other things. Yep. Um, and so we can talk about investing when they're interested in talking about it, but they also know that it's taken care of when they want to be uh, traveling, seeing yep. kids, uh, doing other fun things yep. as well. So, well, and, and you know, I've said this on the show before too. People might be surprised that I use an investor, uh, an advisor for my for my uh, my own investments, and it's because I know I have biases. Yeah. And uh, I have kind of emotional baggage with money and things <laughs> that, you know, I think this might happen and that might happen. Yeah. And um, so I work with someone to, to save me from myself and it's <laughs> more than worth the uh, the fee I pay for it. So um, so I, I agree uh, a good uh, partner um, can add a lot of value. So I think I'll end on with a kind of a public service announcement while we're talking about fees and advisors. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you, and I know you've heard this before too, how many people, prospects have come to us and said, you know, looked at us and they're stone cold serious and said, I don't pay my advisor anything to, to manage my money. And, you know, you and I both know that's simply not true unless the Salvation Army has started an investment management division I'm not aware of there's a cost associated with working with an advisor. And so my uh, belief is if, you know, your advisor has said that, that it's probably time to get a second opinion on your, your investments. And if you don't know where to start, find someone like us that follows the fiduciary standard. Yes, absolutely, Adam. In fact, um, it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody is doing anything for free. And I think it's really, really important to understand how your advisor is getting paid. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of conflicts of interest mm. in our industry. Yep. Um, and you want to have an advisor where how they're getting paid is aligned with your interest rather than in contrast to your interest. Yeah. Um, even a personal story, I have a good friend that lives in Minnesota and she had asked me for all the right questions. So she asked all the right questions in terms of how are you getting paid? Um, you know, are you getting paid from the investments? Are you getting paid when there's trades, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and they outright were, were lied to. Oh, and geez. then when the um, laws had changed for the retirement accounts yep. and disclosures on those, um, which actually uh, got changed back, but she got in the mail um, a disclosure of what some of those fees were just on the retirement accounts mm. and then knew um, that she wasn't being told the right information. But yeah. I had said after she was very upset about that, well, didn't you know that it wasn't really... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it wasn't really free and it wasn't really um, quite the low amount that you thought. But absolutely, you want to have... And it, you want to understand how your advisor is making money. Yep. And you want to make sure that how they're making money um, is aligned with how you make money and how you can be successful together. That sure. was a really big part of me coming to First National. Yep. Um, that was on my non-negotiable list that I'm not going to work for a firm um, that doesn't have a fee schedule aligned with customers. Yep. Oh, that's great. Well, let's leave it there. Those are the uh, top five secrets of successful investors. Thank you so much for joining me. This was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Yeah, Thanks appreciate for having it. Me. And uh, as always, if anyone has any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We love hearing from you. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Bye. I hope you found this helpful. If you did, 
please subscribe and share with your family or friends. If you have a topic you want us to cover in future episodes, send us a note through our website. And if you're at the point where you want an expert opinion on your finances, reach out and we'd be happy to start a conversation. And remember, any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you and your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor.